We've got a couple of sermons coming up that are going to be hopefully question and answers on the book of Romans. Uh, if nobody comes up with questions, we'll, I'll still preach on something. Um, but <clears throat> I prefer to answer questions. And then uh, we've got actually another uh, series that's going to start on Sunday evenings coming up. I think it's in uh, late October or mid-October that's going to be going through the I Am statements of Jesus to talk about um, how Jesus actually did declare that he is God and what those statements uh, that he was making mean uh, for those of us who follow him. But tonight, what I'm going to do is actually just a standalone uh, sermon. And uh, my desire for Sunday evenings uh, for this fall and winter is to have it look a little bit differently, uh, to be a little bit more relational connection um, on Sunday nights between me and you. And we will have a testimony tonight. We don't have one, um, but we'll have one testimony on Sunday nights instead of two. We'll give the people five to ten minutes, you know, if some people want a little bit longer. And uh, then we'll have that happen after uh, whoever speaks, preaches. Um, the message will be maybe a little bit long or a little bit shorter. They'll get that time and then we'll go into a little bit longer time in prayer, hopefully, um, is what we'll do. Uh, but like I said, tonight's is a singular message. And what I'm wanting to do in this standalone message is give an overview of the book of Genesis. Um, there's not many chapters in that book, so this should be a short sermon. Uh, but no, actually, I know I've mentioned to uh, maybe many of you, um, that my Bible study method, what I'm doing right now is I'm reading through five chapters a day. And once I get through the book, I go back to the beginning of that book. And then I read two chapters a day. And while I read those two chapters, I will also read notes from my biblical theology study Bible. And then I will take the notes that I think are pertinent and I will transfer them into my journaling Bible. Uh, and in doing that, the reason why I'm doing that is because I'm wanting to grasp more of the bigger storyline of Scripture and grasp more of the themes that are brought up from book to book to book to book. Have you ever listened to somebody preach before and they're like, and that reminds me of Hezekiah when he said blah, blah, blah. And you're like, how did you get that? You know? Um, and so I want to be like that person, you know? Hopefully, not in a prideful way. I want to know more of these themes that are running throughout Scripture. And so that's, that's why I'm doing that. And tonight, uh, this overview of Genesis is just a little bit of the fruit of what I've been learning as I read through Genesis a, a couple months ago and learn some things. Now, because of the nature of our time tonight, I'm not going to get into certain things that you might be like, oh, why didn't you talk on that? And I might even say, well, I wish I would have talked on that. Um, and other things I'll bring up. But my, my hope is to just bring up the idea of some of these themes by talking about the storyline of Genesis. Um, maybe for you, as you hear this, this will motivate you to do some more study in the book of Genesis or motivate you to do a little bit more reading to try to pick up on bigger ideas than just, you know, I, I grew up um, in, in, with kind of a Bible study method when I was a kid of just read one chapter a day. Um, and that's fine. You can read one chapter a day. But sometimes when you just read one chapter a day, you're not getting bigger ideas and you're not connecting book to book. The Bible is written by one author ultimately. Um, through many authors communicating his message of redemption. So we're getting into the book of Genesis tonight. <clears throat> and this is my notes here. And so if you like to take notes, you can 
just write down what I write here or anything else. But Genesis, uh, it's, it's entitled that because it's the beginning. And so it's the book of beginnings. And many of us would probably admit that beginnings are very important. Uh, how you begin your day could say a lot about what the rest of the day is going to be like when you wake up even in the morning. Or how you plan a certain thing might say a lot about what's going to happen with that thing if, with little planning or greater planning. You think about this auditorium that was built and uh, when they were... <laughs> When the people were laying the foundation, they got measurements wrong on three walls, was it, uh, for the foundation? And thankfully, the construction company caught it and made them fix the mistake. But they said, man, if, if, if this wasn't fixed, you'd see cracks in these walls within five years. Um, th the beginnings matter. How you lay a foundation matters. And as I studied through the book of Genesis, I started to see, whoa, there are so many beginning things in the book of Genesis that just translates through the whole rest of Scripture. How many of you have seen that uh, drawing that Ben likes to show that he got from Popular Science? Do you know what I'm talking about with the connections from different places and different books uh, of the Bible? Um, oh, it's in there. I can't interrupt them. But it's a beautiful picture. You can go in there at some point in time and see it. But uh, they, they charted the connections from book to book to book. And you see the arch from Genesis, and it goes all the way to Revelation. It, it travels through the whole of Scripture. So these beginnings matter quite a bit. Now, again, I'm not getting into all the things that are mentioned in Genesis, but I do hope that I get a larger context. So think of tonight kind of like <clears throat> flying in an airplane and we're at 36,000 feet. And so what does the train look like at 36,000 feet? It doesn't look the same if you were on the ground. So I'm not going to get into all the ground stuff. I'm, I'm trying to talk 36,000 every once in a while, maybe get a telescope or something and, and look down at it. But I'm going to start with just an order to the book of Genesis. And Genesis, you could break it up into essentially three sections, creation and fall, which would be chapters one through three. And then you have humanities continued rebellion, which are chapters four through 11. And then we have God's chosen people, which is 12 through 50. Uh, basic breakdown, and if you say, hey, Pastor Timothy, I can't see your handwriting very well, then I just say, welcome to the front, okay? So, and if you don't move, then it's on you. Okay, so creation and fall is where we're, where we're going to start here. Um, and the Bible starts, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, okay? So here we have a statement of authority. Moses does not argue for God's existence, he assumes God's existence, and he states some very important things about the nature of God in Genesis chapter 1. First, God is sovereign. He is the controller and ruler over all. And second, God is self-sufficient. So let's just do this if we're taking notes. God's character. First mentionings in the Bible are very important. So God is sovereign and God is self 
sufficient. One of the words for God that is used in Genesis 1 expressly brings the self-sufficiency out. God does not need anything in order to help himself. Everything comes from himself. He is who he is. Self-sufficient, needs nothing. Sovereign, he does whatever he pleases. He is the uncreated creator. So he created all, he did it all from himself. And then Genesis in this story of creation shows us that, that uh, God, or it shows us that there were waters over the face of the earth. Now, that, that actually relates to the, the sovereign piece as well. Uh, because in the ancient culture, waters represented chaos. Okay, so there's waters over the face of the earth. There's chaos here. And then what does God do with the waters? Yeah, he gives them instruction, essentially, and he's like, this is where you're going to go. Well, now the Holy Spirit, or his spirit, hovers over the face of the waters and brings the waters together. And so what God does there is he brings order from chaos. And you're going to see that that's actually a theme throughout the scriptures, okay? But God has control over the waters. God creates. He's over creation. But there is more to God's character as well. In this creation, God is gracious. He creates this beautiful world. Uh, this was something that I found in my study as I was taking broader passages of scripture and more time studying these chapters. I started to actually almost start to feel lost in Eden or, or welcomed in Eden, feeling, wow, this is truly an amazing place. This is perfection. This is glorious that God has prepared this place. Now, the, the phraseology in the creation account for, for creation itself um, is actually phrases that would match uh, temple illustrations. That God has created this creation as a cosmic temple. So he is the one to be worshipped and he is the one to be adored within this creation. So he is the center, and we are created under him. So he's the sovereign, he's the self-sufficient one. And then in this cosmic temple, he needs creatures, or he has created creatures. He doesn't need, but he's created creatures to worship him. All right? And, and you have in the creation account, Adam and Eve are created uh, finally, which actually the culmination is showing that humanity is the pinnacle of creation, okay? And then God breathes life into them, which I'm just going to say that would be another, uh, another characteristic, life-giving, which you could also put under that or as a part of that gracious and merciful. So God gives life to human beings. He created them on the final day of creation. And then there's characteristics for human beings. Now, this is important for us to understand in the whole of Scripture. God's sovereign, self-sufficient, and life-giving. Okay? Now, what about human beings? God has created human beings to rule under his rule and to worship him. So they, they are created in creation to honor him, to obey him, and to rule under his rule. Because God says that they are to tend this garden, they are to be fruitful and multiply. They are to do things that image forth God. So man's characteristics, 
you would have vice regent. What did I say the other one was? Hold on. What did I say? Okay, I did say that, but oh, no. Ha! Ding! I just saw it, and now I forgot it. You think I wrote this out, I practiced it? Okay, worshipers. Whew! What's the chief end of man? Okay, so we are to rule under his rule, and we are to worship God. And as vice regent, that means we're not supreme, right? God is supreme. So we are to serve under him, imaging forth him and his character in what we do in this creation. As a result, in that dependence, we are intended as well to be life-giving, okay? That when he says, be fruitful and multiply, part of that means having children, right? So again, we image forth him in being life-giving. That's how it's intended to be. So you can actually see some connections between these characteristics, right? Some more clear than others. Or maybe we could do a lowercase l here. Because we're not the same type, but still imaging him. He's sovereign. We're under his rule. He's self-sufficient God and worthy of our worship. He gives life. Therefore, we are to image him by giving life. Okay? But we know that's not what happened. Um, Adam and Eve... They decided to sin. They're tempted by Satan, and all creation falls because the pinnacle of creation, which is humanity, falls into sin. So as Paul says in Romans, all creation is now subjected to futility because of the sin of human beings. Now right here, we have one more characteristic of God that comes out clearly. God is the just judge. He'd already said he was going to, he was going to judge them. And, and Adam and Eve don't have, you know, in the ultimate sense, this characteristic of judgment. God judges all human beings. Human beings can be judges. We can get to that at another point. But God is just judge. And we get to the consequences. But even in God's consequences, what's so intriguing is Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. There's going to be someone who's going to crush the serpent's head while being wounded himself, which I know that all of you have heard this before, but it's a a beautiful reminder to us that from the beginning, God, from the beginning we saw in creation, God brings order out of chaos. Okay? Then there's the chaos of sin. And what is God going to do but bring order out of this chaos? Okay? So, I believe Adam believed the promise. I believe Adam actually had what we would call saving faith in this moment. If you've ever, I don't know if you ever asked the question, do you think Adam's in heaven? I, I do believe Adam is in heaven. I believe he believed the promise because after God states this, that, that this Messiah is going to come, that Adam names his wife. And what does he name her? Eve. Because she is what? The mother of all living. 
I, I find that to be so ironic in some ways. I'm like, no, she's the mother of death. You know, look what she did, right? Look what Adam did. They destroyed everything. But he calls her the mother of all living, which I think is him exercising faith in the promise of God that there is going to be one who is actually going to bring life back, who's going to give the life we need. She is the mother of all living. So here we have creation as the cosmic temple, God bringing order from chaos and bringing life. He's sovereign in it all. He's entirely self-sufficient. He creates human beings who are to be worshipers of him, ruling under his rule, being dependent on him while mirroring his glory and bringing life into this world. And they grow in their relationship and they're supposed to grow in their relationship with God. But as chapter three shows, humans have destroyed everything, yet God reveals his life-giving grace. He's brought order out of chaos before. He's going to do it again through the woman. And then Genesis goes into genealogies. And everybody here says, I love genealogies. You know, no. I mean, most of the time you're like, what's the point? Let's just get to a point. Like, read, read another story. Why do we have a genealogy? And the reason why we have genealogies is because God made a promise that he was going to do something through the seed of a woman, which means we need to know that God is going to be faithful to his promises. And so they're trekking through this person to this person to this person. What you find in Genesis is often the, um, if I can word it this way, almost like the Antichrist genealogy and then the genealogy that's going to lead to the Christ. Okay, so we go on into the next section and we find humanity's continued rebellion in chapters 4 through 11. The genealogies reveal Adam and Eve have another son named Seth. And the emphasis focuses on him and his lineage. But then there's the, if we could say like the Antichrist lineage, so to speak, is the son of Cain. We know the story between Cain and Abel. Murder happens. Adam and Eve could have been like, oh, this is the seed. This is going to be the one. Nope, this is not the one. But we move on into Cain's lineage, and you finally get to the end of this lineage, and you have a man by the name of Lamech, and he's, he's a real winner. Um, he just, he's, you, you clearly see um, here in polygamy and also his vengeance um, that, that he is going to take control and he has life as he wants to do it. And if, if Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, then mine is 77fold. I will take it on myself. You're like, whew, humans aren't that impressive, you know, in that genealogy. You see the sinfulness of the gene genealogy. They're not acting as the vice regents they ought to act like. They're not worshiping God. They're not giving life. They're murdering. Then you go on into the next genealogy, which is Seth's genealogy. And in Seth's line, you get down to a man by the name of Lamech as well. And this Lamech actually becomes the father of Noah. And I believe that Lamech trusts the Lord by Noah's days, the scripture, though, says that all the intentions of the heart of man was only evil continually. And before you hear that statement and you go, whoa, man, I'm glad we don't live in that kind of day. Um, just remember that after the flood, when society was growing, that exact same statement is made. The thoughts and the intents of the heart was only evil continually. Which, by the way, shows us all the way from the beginning in Genesis, the doctrine of total depravity. Human beings are sinful, and we are bound in our sins. And so here we have 
this story with Noah, and Noah does trust the Lord. God tells him to build this ark. He's not seen rain before. He builds it. God sets aside animals. God sets aside Noah's family for flourishing in, in the world after the flood. And in the story of the flood, we actually have like a mini new creation account. The people's sins bring forth death. And then we're told the waters cover the face of the earth. Where have we heard that statement before? Genesis 1, right? And then the spirit blows on the water, although Genesis, some translators say the wind, you know, but the wind and the spirit, same word in the Hebrew, okay? Spirit blows on the waters, removes the waters, and now they're able to land on the earth and, and live again. So it's this, this mini creation or recreation or new creation. But after the flood, we find out and it's made explicit, Noah's sinful too. He's got his issues. His son, Ham, does something very inappropriate uh, with his father. And he's cursed. And now we're like back to genealogies again. God's made a promise. The serpent crusher is going to come. We go to the Tower of Babel. All the people have a unified language. And what are they wanting, what are they wanting to do? They want to build a tower to heaven. Do you think it's because they're like, we, we got to get there so that we can really show God, you know, we love him. You know, nothing, nothing to that effect. Um, the idea seems to be similar to that of the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. What did Satan tempt them with? You will be like God, okay? So here they are, and they, they, don't, they don't care about God. They want to be at the level of God. So we're going to build this tower up, and we're going to be impressive, and we're going to be like God's. And then God disperses them through changing their languages. And yet God still shows mercy to them. While they're dispersed, he doesn't, he doesn't sentence them to death. He doesn't cause another flood. Because he had already promised not to flood the earth again. But mighty nations come about. And people are acting unfaithfully. You, when you read in the Genesis narrative and the... Uh, genealogies, you see certain nations that were very powerful that were coming from certain children. But what's interesting is once we get to this third point in chapter 12, God starts to focus in on a certain people group. And right from the beginning, he's focusing in on a, pe a, a people group that's not as powerful. He's not going to Egypt. He's not going to the, the more powerful nations. He's going to this nomadic uh, people, which, which should show us a theme that we see throughout the scriptures, too, that God likes to choose the despised and the weak and the things that the human beings generally wouldn't go after. But God is a God who, loves, who has planned to bring order from chaos. God is a God who has orchestrated these events. And so God goes to a man named Abram. And God declares promises to Abram. But God just first, he tells Abram to follow, follow after me and I'm going to bring you to a homeland. And Abram's name eventually changes to Abraham. God promises that through him, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. God promises him a homeland that will someday be his. Which, which think about the original creation account. I mean, Eden is essentially, or was, home. From that point on, we're wanderers. And God is saying, I'm, I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to bring you to a place that you can say, this is it. 
And so you start to read in this account of the promises that God is giving to Abraham that he's, the promises he gave to Adam and Eve, he's, he's now passing down to Abraham and f- filling out some more details. Abraham follows after the Lord, but then you get to this certain point where, where God makes this promise. And then, of course, the, the idea of faith and the need for faith becomes more explicit and beautiful when we're told that Abraham believed. And what's the rest of the phrase? And, yeah, credited to him or counted to him as righteousness. So you see that actions of Abraham, even though Abraham could have left his land, that wasn't, that wasn't the point at which it said his faith was counted as righteous. It's later on. He could have had actions, but it was a moment where he's like, I believe, I trust you. I trust your promise for this one to come. And so he waits. And of course, he's, he wavers in his waiting. And you see stories of how a nation's not blessed because he doesn't act righteously. But you also see how other places are not blessed because they don't bless him. But he believes. And then he finally has a son. And he has Isaac. And then Isaac's 12 years old. And God says, you're going to sacrifice your son. Give him to me. <laughs> and I just can't imagine what that would be like. I mean, from an ancient perspective, um, Generally, from the ancients' perspective, if the gods said do it, you know, it's just you, you do it um, because the gods said it. We, we are so much more sophisticated today. We like to argue more, um, thinking our reason is so much better. But Abraham, uh, he goes, he takes his son, and he's about ready to sacrifice. But Hebrews tells us that, wait, is it Hebrews? Um, yes, that he believed that God could have even raised his son from the dead. So he actually believed that God was going to keep Isaac alive somehow, even if he died and came back to life. And so he trusted God's promise. Of course, God provided a lamb in the place of his son, which I think even signifies to us as well that there is a lamb who is in the place of our death. Of course, Isaac then has a child named Jacob, and there's issues there between he and his brother. What's very interesting between these patriarchs is there is... um, closed wombs that are consistent with the wives um, in their stories and shows the miracle of God opening their wounds, wombs. Um, the seed of the woman is going to come and a closed womb isn't going to stop God, which, man, it just kind of makes me think of another story way later with a lady named Mary. You know, nothing stops God. This is not going to be a problem for him. Okay? So, You have Isaac, you have Jacob. Jacob has many sons, and of course, one of the sons, Joseph, his older brothers are jealous of him, and so it leads to Joseph going into slavery, eventually into Egypt, but of course, he's blessed through it all. But you also see Joseph praising God in the end. Uh, Once his brothers come back to him, uh, he's like, I'm not the one. I am not in this place. And you actually see Joseph, even in Egypt, as really a vice region of God, worshiping him and even being used by God to give life to people and give life to the nation of Israel, to Jacob's family. And he comes and he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, which means what? God is sovereign and he's sovereign over all. Joseph trusts the Lord in the midst of this and blesses the people. 
But by the end of the book of Genesis, I mean, it basically ends and Joseph dies. What? Oh no, he was such a great guy. I mean, he was probably the best one, you know, in some ways in the whole story of Genesis because Genesis is a bunch of messed up stories um, that sometimes we like to gloss over, but it's really messy stories. But he dies. Clearly, he's not the Messiah. Now, I want to go back with something that I, I didn't say in terms of themes. I mentioned order out of chaos. Um, but we also see in here God's judgment, or God's mercy comes through judgment. That, that often it's when God declares judgment that he also declares mercy in some way, shape, or form. Um, so, so maybe you can write that down in your notes that you have mercy through judgment, order from chaos. Another very interesting theme in the book of Genesis that actually will be traced through from book to book, in the Old Testament at least, um, and I believe in the New as well, is east, the direction, the garden. When God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, where did the cherub stand, or the cherubim stand? At the east entrance. They're kicked out, and when you read Genesis, it's almost as if the people keep traveling away, east, away, 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 away. They're away from this center of the temple, you know. Then, later on in the Bible, when God institutes the tabernacle building, where's the entrance? Facing east. Which signifies to the people, God is welcoming you to come back. Now, it's not fully open, you know, to everyone to enter in. But it's at the east, and you're coming back. What you find even in the temple and the tabernacle are all these symbols that were found even in the Garden of Eden. You have the, the lampstand is in the shape of a tree with lights, with flames, signifying the tree of life. You have cherub all around in there. There's garden imagery in the temple, and God is saying, you're coming back. I'm drawing you back to worship me. So east seems to be very important in the scriptures if God is drawing you back to him. What we see when we kind of put all of this together in Genesis, we need one, we need someone, the serpent crusher, who is actually going to rule under God's rule. And we know in the scriptures that Jesus is even said today to be ruling until he makes all of his enemies in subjection to him and then he will give the kingdom over to the Father. Jesus as the God-man, as a faithful ruler. We need one who is going to be born with the Spirit hovering over the waters and really, even the, some of the phraseology in Matthew seems to mimic that, that the Spirit hovered over the waters of Mary's womb and brought and began what we refer to as the new creation. Jesus is the initiator of this. We need one who came in the flesh and was dependent on the Spirit and on the Father, one who actually can give life because he's life. We need one who's sovereign and judge, 
We, we see even in the flood illustration, Peter brings it up later on in the scriptures, that the flood illustrates God's wrath and Jesus on the cross is like the ark. There's, I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, one of the ancient symbols in Christendom is actually a cross with an ark on it. Because Jesus took the flood of God's wrath and we in Christ have been protected from the flood and we have been secured. And Jesus did that in the place of sinners to give life and mercy. Jesus brings us back to God, not by telling us to build a tower, but instead he raises from the dead and then he brings us to God, those of us who humble ourselves before him. And he has promised to set us free. And and through him, we have his righteousness through faith. And then Jesus promises a kingdom to come. When you get to Revelation, you read that the one who is an overcomer eats from the tree of life. And the tree of life does not show up. Again, it's like it just shows up in Revelation again. There it is. And there we have the tree of life, and there we have God, and there is now the perfect cosmic temple. And now the dwelling place of God is with man. I mean, that's building up on some ideas in the book of Genesis, but Genesis really is a book of beginnings that should excite us and encourage us and say, ah, there's a connection here, there's a connection here, there's a connection here. How beautiful this story that just in this first book of the Bible God has made promise after promise and assurances to give us greater hope in our uh, trek of, of learning more about him and loving and seeking after him. Uh, with that, do you guys, I know I'm just putting this on you, do you guys have any questions on what I said or clarifiers? Huh? Don't stop? <laughs> well, I, I need to. My notes are done. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think that a lot of the stories are, I, I'm not going to probably give a fully sufficient answer, so I'll give a basic. Um, but we know a lot of the stories in the Old Testament and a lot of practices in the Old Testament is for types and symbols. Um, and so small or, or microcosm type stories that lead to a greater, greater storyline. Um, so at least from that perspective, we can see that and we can see fulfillment as well of what takes place. Um, you know, in my mind, I would say, is that just of God to do that? Um, and that's where uh, we would, that, where I would say that um, they deserve punishment anyway. I don't think God's design was, this is actually going to be the answer. Um, but it is going to show human beings are sinful. And it is going to show that God, God is still merciful. And there's probably a whole book out there somewhere on more of that. Yeah, Dan. So I don't know the definition of total depravity. Could you please define that? Yeah, total depravity. Some people, th- okay, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean, then what it does mean. Um, it does not mean that people are as overtly, horrifically sinful in their practice as they possibly can be. What it does mean is that every, every part of the human being is scarred by sinfulness. Therefore, no human being can glorify God nor wants to glorify God um, apart from the grace and mercy of God. Was Mary? Mm-hmm. Like when we're baptized? Yeah, I mean, when, 
There is. I mean, because Peter brings, brings out the connection with baptism and, and connects baptism with the waters of the flood. And when we're baptized, we are signifying we've died and we're living again, but it's that we've died in Christ. And the amazing thing is, is that we have been placed into the water and we've come out alive. That does not, that in the, in the ancient mindset or when you think about the chaos of the waters, you would go into the water and be dead. You know, but God has brought us out of the water in Christ and we're alive. So it's a beautiful picture. Another question? No? All right. Well, then let's just uh, take some time, break up into groups to pray, and actually pray for our church family um, as, as we seek to grow in the word, um, grow as disciples of Christ. You can pray based on things that were preached this morning, but also this week begins a lot of discipleship things um, in the church from ladies' Bible study, to women's systematic, to various men's discipleship groups this coming weekend. Um, and then even as I mentioned this morning about Sowers and Squad this month, doing their debate month and trying to learn and grow together and those types of things. So um, let's pray that we don't do those things in our strength and that God uh, is magnified and glorified in growing us uh, more to love him and worship him. So break up into groups like that and then I'll close our time in prayer. Lord, thank you that we can pray to you and that you hear us. Thank you for Christ who illumines us to your word um, through the Spirit and has given us uh, hope for all eternity, that we don't simply have uh, knowledge of some people having access into a temple on our behalf, but that Jesus has entered into the heavenly courtroom, and therefore we can as well. And someday, someday, the new Jerusalem, the gate will be open, and we can all enter freely, that we will be worshipers of you, that we will be a kingdom of priests to our God, ruling under your rule with no sin, no shame, no, no sorrow because of sin or brokenness. And that even Revelation tells us, and the sea will be no more, meaning the chaos will be gone. Oh, Lord, thank you that we have this hope. I pray that you would increase that in you, increase, increase that hope in us, in you, assurance in you. Lord, I pray that as we grow as a church, both spiritually and numerically, that in all of these things, Father, that we would not coast, we would not backtrack, but that we would worship you all the more because of your great mercy and grace and love and power, your sovereignty, your self-sufficiency, and your life. Thank you, Lord. And again, we remind ourselves it's because of Jesus that we know you hear us and that your love is showered down on us. Amen.